0: All right, well, good morning, Three Circle and all of our campuses joining us right now. It's really great to be with you guys today. We, uh, if you're joining us from somewhere in the country and it's not nice and cool, it's actually nice and cool here today in our local area, and we're super grateful for that. Uh, we're going to continue our Thriving in Babylon series. Notice it does not say surviving in Babylon. It says thriving in Babylon, and that's what we believe the Bible can equip us to do. And it's what we see in the Old Testament as we look at this incredible story about how the children of Israel found themselves in Babylon. We know now as we've studied this that they were under the discipline of God. They were under the discipline of God and that God was up to something. He, he had not lost control. He was completely in control. And as, and as you and I wake up today, we wake up in a world much like they did. They woke up in a world they, ho- they could hardly recognize. Like the culture, the the promiscuity, the wicked leadership, the indoctrination, all that was in Babylon. And we look around and go, wow, sounds familiar. And then we turn on our news this weekend. We're going, what is happening while the Middle East kind of explodes again? And we just go, what is going on? It seems like everything's out of control. I got good news for you today. God is in control of who is in control. Let me say that again. God is in control of who's in control. And we need to remember that. I think a question we ask when we look at Daniel and how he lived his life in Babylon, we go, how did he do that? And one of the things we're going to have to understand is that he absolutely believed in the sovereignty of God. He believed that God was in control of who was in control. He didn't know what was going to happen the next day. He didn't know how he was going to get through the next day, but he woke up every day in that horrific place going, I know that God is in control of who is in control and that included a wicked king like Nebuchadnezzar. So throughout this series, what we said is we're going to look at three primary books in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, the prophet, tells us, hey, it's coming. He was telling Israel, it's coming. And God was speaking directly through him. Then the book of Daniel tells us kind of what happened. Daniel lived it out from about 15 years old till he was an old man. He lived in Babylon underneath three successive wicked Babylonian kings. And he thrived and became a very important and powerful man along with his buddies, we look at the book of Habakkuk, that little bitty book in your Old Testament. You could read it this afternoon. And Habakkuk, very bravely, very boldly, says to God, why'd you do this? Why'd you let this happen? What are you up to? And I love God's answer. He tells him, Habakkuk, you're not going to understand. It's too big. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to trust me. I need you to trust me even when you don't understand. All of these lessons are coming out of this story, and today's gonna to be no different. We're gonna have some hard lessons to learn from Daniel today. So let's turn to the book of Jeremiah. God is speaking through him, and he reminds the people of Israel that he's in control, stunningly so. Look what he says. He says, now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and, but I love this, you ready? The king of Babylon, My servant, and I've given him also the beast of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I've consumed it by his hand. Now, I just want to explain to you what's going on here, and I love this. You ready? God, through Jeremiah, says, I want you to tell the people, now that this exile is happening, I want you to tell them that that king, that wicked king, Nebuchadnezzar, watch this, is nothing more than a tool in my hand. He says, I'm the one that's given him his power. I'm the one that's given him his throne. I'm the one that has given him his land. And when I'm done with him, look what he says. He says, and when I'm done with Babylon, I'm going to put him down. When I'm done with Babylon, I'm going to raise up some other people to bring him down. Let me tell you what Nebuchadnezzar was. A crescent wrench in the hand of our God while he was doing his work. He just pulled Nebuchadnezzar out of a toolbox and used him. When he's done, he's going to put him back down. And that may, listen, you know what that tells me? That tells me that God is in control. He's in control, man. That's what he tells. He, he, he tells Jeremiah, you remind my people that that king thinks he's the king. Watch this. Look at his words. He says, he's my servant and he doesn't even know it. He's my servant he's doing what he's he's going to he's going to fulfill my purposes and he didn't even sign up for it isn't that good to know that god's in control of who's in control isn't it good to know that no matter what goes on around me and you as christians can sleep like babies because we know who is overall but now that doesn't make it easy because what that requires what it demands is like daniel we must learn to trust god even when we don't understand Because sometimes I don't understand. Anybody else with me? I don't understand. Sometimes, hey, I don't like it. You think Daniel woke up every day going, man, it's another beautiful day in Babylon. It wasn't good. But he learned how to thrive in that. He learned how to give God glory. He he will never leave. He's not going to see the end of this thing. He's going to be an old, old man. I mean, he's an old fellow when they throw him in the lion's den. We're going to see next week. But... He lived joyfully, successfully to God's glory. See, God reminds us in Isaiah 55, eight through nine, that we're gonna have to learn to trust him even when we don't understand. God says through Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. These are principles that that are going to help you live. You're going to have to wake up every day and realize, I don't understand everything, but I trust my God. I don't get why this is going on, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of energy on that. I'm going to trust that my God is in control. And Daniel did this. It reminds me of this. There was a... When I was a kid, I, uh, my grandfather and my dad were both fans of boxing. So subsequently, I became a fan of boxing and any kind of fighting. It's, I even liked fake fighting, like Macho Man and Hulk Hogan, okay? Uh, turns out it wasn't real. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't have believed that when I was a kid, though. But there was real fights. Uh, when I was a kid in the 80s and early 90s, Mike Tyson was becoming a big deal, right? And uh, I played. any of you played, remember the Nintendo game, Knockout with Mike Tyson? Any, where's my people out there, my age group? There you are. Okay, you remember you could get the power and it was fun. So, um, but before my time, three years before I was born, some say one of the greatest boxing matches of all time took place. And it took place between who many consider the greatest boxer of all time, Ali, and another great boxer, George Foreman. Now you know George Foreman because you've been eating dried up chicken on his grill for 20 years. (laughs) Made him about $500 million. You know the grill. And he'll tell you, he's like, hey, man, you use my grill, all the fat drips to the bottom. You're looking at it for me, like, brother, you're not using that grill. You know what I mean? Because, you know, anyway, Foreman's a big guy, so, but he's like, hey, buy my grill. Um, Interesting factoid, though, about that, that grill was first offered to none other than Hulk Hogan, brother. Yeah, and he turned it down bad business move. So it ended up with with Foreman. It becomes a big deal. And Hulk Hogan's like, oh man, I missed it. So they tried to do a blender, a Hulk Hogan blender, and it didn't go so well. So (laughs) none of you have that blender, but I bet you all got a George Foreman grill under the counter, you know? So George Foreman, though, before he became the purveyor of great grills, he was considered one of the greatest boxers anyone had ever seen. In 1974, he was big, powerful. And they thought that they had never seen anyone punch like Foreman, he was dangerous. Knock guys out. You would think, wow, they may be dead. I mean, he was this powerful, powerful boxer. And he's going to fight Ali. And people started thinking, you know what? Ali's not going to handle this well. He's about to get beat. He's older now, past his prime probably. People were saying all that. And, and people thought, he's not going to make it. This is not going to be good. And you know what? If you watch that fight for seven rounds, you'll believe that. For seven rounds, Foreman wears Ali. Like, he just... Beating him down. And they, if you listen to the announcers, they're saying things like he should have never taken this fight. Ali looks like a shell of himself. He's losing this fight. He was losing. He was losing every round. He's like, this is horrible. Ali should have never gotten in the ring. What has happened? He's not in shape. What is going on? If round four, they're saying it. Round five, they're saying it. Round six, you think, all the way into round seven, you think he's going to lose. And then came round eight. And round eight, Look a little bit like this. Check it out. More punches now. Maybe this could be the tactic of Ali to let the man punch himself out. 30 seconds left in round eight. Very even fight. Ali, a sneaky right hand. Another sneaky right hand. This time he works over the shoulder. Oh, Eight round eight for seven rounds. You know what? Now, now, now we all know the story, and so by the time I came along and could watch boxing, I go back, and watch the videos, and I knew the story, I knew what to look for. And so, afterwards, they all realized what Ali had done. He comes out, he said, It was my plan all along, he was faking it for seven rounds. The whole plan was let Foreman hit you, just don't let him hit you in the face, and he never does. Ali bragged afterwards. He said, I was too pretty to let him hit me. You know, that's Ali. He's saying stuff like that. But Foreman never really got him. And if you watch the match, Foreman tells us now in interviews that Ali was making fun of him the whole round, trying to get him to hit harder, hit harder, because he knew how to block him. And the whole time, he even named it something. Anybody remember what the name for his approach was? The rope-a-dope, right? The whole thing was I was faking. And he said, I knew. Me and my trainers knew all along that Foreman would wear himself out. He's big. He's bulky. He wasn't in shape. Cardio wise like I was. And so he said, I knew, I didn't know what round it would be, but I knew when I felt his fist dropping, when I felt the power leave his punches, I knew I had him. And literally it took eight seconds for one punching combination for my lead to knock the strongest boxer in the world out. Okay. But here's the deal. If you would have been watching and you didn't know the story in round four and five, you would have thought he's losing. This is horrible. And then came round eight. And see, this is what we do to God. We're living in round three and round four and round five. And we look around, we're like, we're losing. This is horrible. Everything's terrible. We're not gonna make it. And we have forgotten that God's already told us that there's a round eight coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and savior and that he's going to win in the end. And we forget it in round four and five, but we've got to remember that our God is in control and round eight is coming church it's coming. We got to believe that. The problem is we don't live like that. In round four and five, we start freaking out. Like what's going on here? How did that guy end up in the White House? How did this happen? How did that happen? What's going on? And God says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa. I want you to live differently than that. I want you to be concerned. I want you to care. I want you to have a voice." And, and see, the problem is, as many of us, we think that's a form of weakness. Don't, listen, until, until one of you can come to me and say that you've been thrown into a pen of hungry lions for your faith or into a fire for your faith, then these boys got one up on all of us. And yet they lived with such confidence. Daniel embraced God's sovereignty, therefore he could live confidently, faithfully, and effectively. He lived effectively. They had an impact on Babylon while they were there, even on its wicked king. And that's what I want to focus on the rest of our time. Because Daniel had that confidence, because he understood that he might not even see round eight, but round eight was coming, that he could live differently because of that, that he knew God was in control of who was in control, then he could live a different way. And I want to show you now how Daniel, and again, you... I, I'm just preaching. Don't get mad at me. If you don't like what you see today in all of this, and, and then, then you're going to have to take it up with the writer of the book, and I'm not him. Okay? So you're going to have to email him. Hey, I'm just telling you what it says in the book. I'm a person of the book. So we're going to see how Daniel treated a wicked king and how he interacted with him and how it can instruct us. So watch this phrase. As a young man, here's how Daniel approached Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 2.37, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. I want you to watch what's happening here. Daniel gave honor to a wicked king without compromising his values. And if you don't read that verse you just read slowly and carefully, you will miss a ninja move from Daniel. Daniel as a young man knew how to do this. So he comes to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, you are the greatest king on this planet. He's not calling him Jesus, by the way. King of kings is a title is gonna be given later by Isaiah and others to Jesus, the son of God. What is Daniel saying here? He's saying there's a bunch of kings on the earth, but you're the most powerful one right now. You're the king over all the other kings. You get that? So he tells him, he says, you, O oh king, you're the king over all these kings. And then I love the next phrase. He says, and the only way you're the king And the only way you have a crown and a throne and land or power is the living God who I serve and you don't even believe in is the one that gave it to you, which insinuates if he can give it to you, he can take it away. Do you understand that Daniel just risked his life? And I don't even know if old crazy King Nebi even realized it. King Nebi, short for Nebuchadnezzar, just gets tiring to say it after a while. It's a terrible name. He didn't even realize that this young man just backhanded him in front of everyone. You, oh king, who had all that given to you by the real living God you don't even believe in. When he's done with you, he's going to set you back down. He's using you like a tool, like a crescent wrench to tighten up a a bolt. And When he's done tightening the bolt, it's going to take about 70 years. When he's done with you, he's going to bring you and your son and your grandson and this whole kingdom to the ground. He's going to bring it to the ground just like this. But right now, king of kings. Just know that I know who gave you that. Jesus will do the same thing. Pilate's going to look at him. Jesus stand there bleeding half to death at his trial. Pilate says, you do not have the power to crucify you. Jesus says, Pilate, you have no power. You have no power unless it's been given to you. Do you see the principle? Jesus knew who was in control of who was in control. Daniel knew who was in control of who was in control. This is... You see in the principle, right? They, they were able to live confidently, differently in the face of that. But, it, but he did not compromise. Notice he says, you're the king, but I know who gave you that. No compromise. But then we see something develop. In just a few chapters, and I wanna, I, I'm gonna try to explain this to you in, in, in a way that we can all grab it and get what's being said here. So God, we know from our study so far, gave Daniel the supernatural ability to read and interpret dreams, right? Right? And Nebuchadnezzar has a lot of dreams. I don't know, maybe he had acid reflux that kept him up at night. Babylonian Taco Bell was really rough in the ancient world, I guess. And so anyway, all those late nights, but he was a dreamer, dreaming all the time. And God gave Daniel the supernatural ability to read those dreams and it would come true what he said. So up until that point, Nebuchadnezzar would have dreams and it was all good for him. He would dream that he's gonna get more land than he would and more power than he would. Now remember, Daniel knew who was giving him that power, right? And why would God give a wicked man so much power? Remember, because God's using him to discipline Israel, and he's got to keep him in power long enough to get that discipline done. So, that, so Daniel got all that. But then one night, Nebuchadnezzar had become very arrogant. He was already arrogant, but it was getting even worse than ever. So God sent him a dream that was not good news for him. And he wakes up, and he realizes, ooh, that did not seem like good news for me. So he calls Daniel in because Daniel can read the dreams. And when he tells Daniel the dream, Daniel realizes immediately this is not good. And here's the interaction that takes place, and let's see what we can learn. So the king has told Daniel his dreams, like what does it mean? Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, that was his demon name that the Babylonians gave him, watch this, he was dismayed for a while, And his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered him and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Everybody hit the pause button. I want you to just see this little interaction we just saw. This is a wicked king who's done unbelievable harm. And he owns Daniel, even giving him a new name. But Daniel comes in, and when the king gives him his dream daniel immediately knows so this is real bad for you because the king is about to lose his mind that's what's about to happen but and, and if it would have been me i'm gonna be honest with you if it would have been me i would have been like <laughs> is that what you dreamed Hmm. about time what does it mean oh 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 you're gonna love this you wicked wicked man finally, you're going to get a little bit of what's been coming to you. You see what I mean? We don't get that from Daniel, though. Do you see what you get? The Bible says he is dismayed and alarmed. Now, what does this tell you? I'll tell you what it tells you. Daniel actually cared for Nebuchadnezzar. As wicked and horrific as that man was, this is going to blow your mind, Daniel actually believed the Bible. He didn't just spout it off and put it on Facebook with hashtag blessed. He actually believed it and lived it. And when the Bible said for him to love his enemies, he did. And he actually loved that man. And so when he hears the calamity that's about to come on him, rather than rejoice over it, he's dismayed. Now, some of us would look at that and go, that's weak, that's acquiescent. And see, that's because you have believed the lie. In our culture, we've decided that, that to love someone and actually care about them must mean affirmation or it must mean agree with or it must mean acquiesce or it must mean, yes, that's good what you're doing. No, 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 Daniel's never gonna do that. He knows Nebuchadnezzar's wicked, but he cares for him. It's beautiful, actually. So he tells him in verse 27, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity, but it didn't work. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Immediately the word was fulfilled against him. He was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Okay, so I want some principles here. Daniel tells him, we read it. Daniel says, I don't want this for you. I don't want this to happen to you, but it's going to. And then if you think Daniel's weak, he draws the line. Listen to what he does. He looks at King Nebuchadnezzar and he says, you are wicked. The reason this is happening is you're wicked. You're a horrible, wicked man. You are oppressive, You are rebellious against the living God. And he begs him. He says, and I'm begging you to change. I want you to be righteous. I want you to change. I want you to follow and live a different way. Do you hear this in Daniel? So he tells, watch this. He tells the truth with love. He speaks the truth with grace, even to power. By the way, at that point, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar could have killed him right there and probably would have anyone else. But he actually cared about Daniel. Daniel has earned the right to look at this king and go, it's about to go real bad for you. And I'll tell you why, because you're wicked. That's what's about to happen. This is very instructive for us, isn't it? And then we see, watch this, God is in complete control. So he brings Nebuchadnezzar down. In fact, old King Nebi goes crazy. Fingernails growing out everywhere, hair growing out. It gets bad. He's laying naked out in the field. This is the king of Babylon. And they're like, ignore the naked guy out in the field would do all over him. Hair everywhere. It's an unbelievable story. But watch this. Daniel didn't do all that. Daniel left the punishing up to God while he did the praying. You see that? Daniel didn't think it was his job to straighten out a crooked stick. He prayed to the God of heaven and let him handle that. And he just honored and loved and served and told the truth. You see that? See, Daniel actually had compassion for Nebuchadnezzar. He actually cared. What if we did that? And I'll tell you, it's a harder road to to walk. It's easier to let the echo chambers and angry sentiments of our society lead you down the road. That often is an unbiblical place. I was blown away uh, a few years ago. We just talk about this stuff. Listen, a few years ago, uh, Trump's in the White House and and there's an election and Biden wins the presidency. I know some of you are going to be like, no, he didn't win it. Okay, fine. Whatever you want to say. Let's say it like this. A new dude ended up in the White House. However, there you go. Okay. I'm just a preacher. Okay. And so... I went on Facebook thinking, at some level, I have somewhat of a public position, and I feel like I represent the church and at least locally in some way. And I said, "Well, I know what the Bible tells us to do. We're supposed to pray for that guy, whether we agree with him or not." I don't know where you are politically. I know there's all sorts of political backgrounds here. Um, I'm a pretty conservative guy. Like I'll be honest with you, I tell you who I'm pretty conservative. I don't even like turn my car left if I can help it. I'm just kidding. That's a little joke. <laughs> it's a little joke. Don't get mad. Here comes the emails. That was not a good joke. Okay, okay. I was a good one. It was a good joke. But I put on my Facebook page, I said, I "I am praying for this next administration and the new president-elect of the United States. You would not believe what happened next. Oh, it got bad. Like you should see some of the comments I got on that. I had a pastor, one that kind of local, Oh, got on me and said, You are disrespectful to the man who's in the White House right now. And I'm like, Well, I prayed for him too. I'm praying for the next guy. I mean, I got lit up, phone calls, and it blew my mind. And it was very eye opening to realize that we've gotten to a point where we think love equals agree with. We think that actually honoring and praying for means we're weak and acquiescent. And folks, that's just not the message of the Bible. One of the strongest things you can do is actually pray for your leaders while also holding them accountable. That's what Daniel did. That's what Daniel did. Daniel obeyed and trusted God with the outcomes. That's what he did. We don't control outcomes. Daniel had no idea what would happen next in the crazy world of Babylon, but he knew that he could obey. We're going to see next week that he, didn't, he never acquiesced. He never gave in. When God opened a door for him to have a voice, he used his voice. Hello, Nebuchadnezzar, you're wicked, you're evil. And then when they tell him, hey, you got to stop praying, he's like, no, not going to stop praying. Well, we're going to throw you into a lion's den. Okay. His buddies, we're not bound down your idol. Okay, we're throwing you in fire. All right. Let's have a barbecue. We're not bound down. It's not going to happen. But they actually believed that God was in control. Now, we get the same principle over in the New Testament. And again, we kind of want to quietly forget that this stuff's in the Bible, but it's instructive to us. And all I, you know, the Bible says one of my jobs as a pastor is to equip the saints. So I'm trying to equip us to live in our world so we can shine the brightest light we can, Okay. And let me tell you, my inclination, let me just tell you, is is, I'm a fighter by nature. My favorite guy in the Bible, two of them, is David and Peter. You know, I like the guys who are ready to go fight. You know, Peter's like, you're coming at Jesus? I'm taking your ear off. I like that guy. But the Bible gives us some principles we got to live by. So look what Paul wrote to the church who's under horrific rulers. It's the honor principle. Let's just read it and we'll dissect it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay your taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Well, that's not any fun. What is, like, this is God's word. Okay, so let me, I wanna help you understand. First of all, you need to know that what God's telling you is this is his design. It does not always go that way. Would we agree? Does the government always fulfill its role in a way that is honorable and good? Does the government always punish those that do bad and honor those that do good? Or we're, like, it doesn't happen that way, does it? So then what we see here is an ideal What Paul's saying is this is the way God wants it to go and this is how the government should be running and how we as the church should be interacting with them. It often doesn't go that way. and When it doesn't go that way, we gotta figure that out and wrestle with it. But we should pray for this and hope for this and when it can be like this, we should celebrate and do it this way. Does that make sense, church? So we get some direction here. But what we do see is a very clear hierarchy that God lays out. He says the government has authority that he's given them, but he says, "But what what authority is actually higher than earthly authority?" His. So one principle we get here is obedience to civil authority must not require disobedience to God's authority. So, do we just do everything we're told to do all the time? No, no. We are to honor at all times, and so I'm going to tell you what that means in a moment. But there are times certainly that you don't, that you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. That, and, and again, we're gonna see it in detail next. Daniel had those moments. Daniel's like, I can't eat your food, I'm sorry. Well, the government just told you to eat their food. Sorry, not gonna do it. Well, the government just told you to not pray. Sorry, can't do it. But he never got bitter and blasted them and all that. He just said, I'm not gonna do it. I, got, I have a higher authority, but when I can follow your authority, I will. When you do what you were supposed to do, I'm going to gladly follow your authority and pray for you and and help you even. Another thing we need to remember is that honor, which is what God's calling us to do with leaders, honor is not always obedience. Honor does not always require obedience, but it does always require a level of esteem. That word esteem is important. Let me tell you what it means. It means to highly regard. What it does not mean, honoring government or honoring leaders or what. Honor does not mean always agree with. Honor does not always mean affirm. Honor does not always mean I'm going to do what you tell me to do. Of course, honor doesn't always mean obedience. The Bible says to honor your parents, and it's a lifelong command. I'm 46. I don't obey my parents anymore. Does that make sense? My mom didn't call me this morning and say, what time did you come in last night? You and Nan were out late. Were you all down at that dragonfly place again till late eating tacos? Yeah, you know, I didn't get that. I, I I didn't get a call at all. Because I'm 46. It'd be weird, right? If your mama's still telling you what to do at 46, come on now. Something's wrong. But now what I do, according to the Bible, is I hold my parents in high regard, right? My parents walk in the room, I love them. Speak to them with respect, check in on them, make sure they're okay. And but but it doesn't require obedience. And so we can regard without. Obeying everything someone or something tells us to do. Peter said it like this, and Peter's the fighter, right? If anyone was going to go try to take Nero down, it'd be Peter. If anyone was going to start a problem, it'd be him. But he tells, watch this, and, and know that you need to understand, when Peter wrote his epistles, Nero is, is unleashing some of the worst of the worst on the church. And he says this, honor everyone. Now, how can you say that? Well, because honor and respect aren't the same thing. you got to earn my respect, but i got to give you honor. At the very least, I have to treat you like a human being. According to the Bible, right, Imago Dei, you were made in the image of God. At the very least, i got to honor you as another human being. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. So church, we got another level of it for each other, don't we? I love you in a, in a way that's so unique. We're the family of God. He says, fear God. That's so you do what he t- says to do. And then he tags on at the end, just so they didn't think that you're supposed to love and honor everybody but the wicked emperor. He says, oh, honor the emperor. You know how hard that would have been for the early church? That was hard. Do You know how hard it was for Daniel to wake up every day and actually treat King Nebuchadnezzar with some level of honor? Oh, it was hard. But it is our calling. John Stott, the great theologian, says this about the way it should go between the church and the state, the church and government. This is the way we should hope that it will go and pray that it will go. He says, the church and state have reciprocal duties. The church is to pray for the state and be its conscience. The state is to protect the church so that it might be free to perform its duties so the gospel can be surely Uh, shared freely. Each should acknowledge that the other has, watch this, each should acknowledge the other has a divine origin and purpose, and each should help the other to fulfill its God-given role. That's how it's supposed to work. It doesn't always work that way. I get it. But we should hope and pray and act towards that as far as we can. What this means is God's design is that the church and state should be partners rather than opponents. And here's the deal. I think if we're not careful, we will let our own echo chambers make it to where we see anytime we can become a partner and anytime we can rejoice and anytime we pray for leaders that that looks like weakness and like we've given in. And no, my friends, that looks like obedience. Now, you can throw all that out the door and go out today and go, you know what? I don't like that. Uh, and I would say, and I would ask you today then, who's your authority? Is it your echo chamber? Is it uh, the, the, the commentator on CNN if you're on one side of the aisle? Or is it the commentator on Fox News if you're on the other? What, what voice has the power in your life? Or is it the clear call of Scripture? I'll give you one more thing, and then we're going to apply this in a very powerful way, hopefully. First Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Verse 2, for kings, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to actually live what we hear today in Jesus' name. Amen.